And honestly, Deshaun White has a passion in his heart. They have a group. It's the Spark Recovery. And it's all about being free from opioid addiction. And it's just something that he's very passionate about. So ask him about it when you meet him. And here he goes. How y'all doing? Are y'all enjoying creation? Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm going to share my heart a little bit. And uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit ministers to you in this moment. So the opioid uh, epidemic has swept through America like a massive wave. Did you know that 46% of Americans have a close friend or a family member dealing with addiction? That's over almost half the people here have a family member who's dealing with addiction. 750,000 people per year die from illicit drug use, whether it be directly or indirectly. 750,000 people die per year. That number is staggering. And quite frankly, it's, it's very sad to see that happening in our nation. So we all are asking the question, what do we do? And, and how do we love someone who's dealing with addiction? And I think the only way to really know and to really understand is to go deep into the word of God and see what God says about loving people and dealing with people who are in complicated situations. But first, I'm going to share a little bit of uh, my backstory and um, how I first encountered addiction in my home and how I was raised and how it grew to affect me as I matured. So it's about 1995. I'm young. I come home from a basketball game. And as I walk through the door, I see one of the craziest, most traumatic scenes I've ever seen in my life. Have y'all ever seen like the superhero movies where you, where the heroes show up on the scene, the town's already burned down and there's a bunch of dead people around and you're like, what's going to happen? You know there's going to be an ambush, right? Something's happened, there's going to be an ambush. So that day I walked into my house after a basketball game and it looked like a scene from Avengers. My grandmother's laying under the Christmas tree like a perfectly wrapped present. My granddad is in the closet scrambling. I see my aunts on the step huddled like it's a football game, like they're ready for round two. And here I am, a young 12-year-old boy standing there like, what in the world did I just walk into? And as soon as it clicked that I was in the middle of something that was going on between my family, chaos erupted. See, my uncle had left. And he smoked some bad dope. It was laced with some, some type of opioid, some type of drug. And it caused him to start seeing us as though we were demons. So he was manifesting th these visions that weren't real. So he was seeing his family as demons. And I go through the house, and the first thing I see is he rushes my granddad. My granddad spins. He grabs the bat, and he's getting ready to hit him. And then my grandma crawls from under the Christmas tree. She grabs the bat. She's like, no, you'll kill him. He's like, but he has to go. And then here comes my aunts running off the step. One of them distracted him while the other one opened the front door. While the other one pushed him out of the front door, we slammed the door and out he went. I grew up in uh, Carver Projects. Uh, it was brick tenement type housing. And out this window, we're staring at my uncle trying to figure out what is he going to do next? So he's there and he starts revving up like some type of bull. He's going... 
And I'm like, what is he going to do? He's outside of the house. And I hear him say, I'm going to kill you. And my 12-year-old self is like, I don't want to die. I have dreams. I don't want to die. So I'm freaking out. And my family's like, it's okay. It's okay. He can't get in. I watched this man who was a football star at one point in his life take off full speed and try to jump through a brick building. No. Let me just give you a little bit of wisdom. Man versus brick wall, brick wall wins every single time, just, just in case you didn't know. So here he lays unconscious in our front yard. The cops come and pick him up, and they take him away. The crazy thing is he gets out of jail the next couple days, and he has no recollection of what happened. He had no clue the damage that he had caused our family. It was crazy, and it was mind-blowing. So fast forward a few years, my family were drug dealers. We had never seen drugs affect our home because my family de dealt the drugs. We didn't use the drugs, per se. So that was the first moment in my life where I seen the effects of drugs in real time. Fast forward, I take the path of my family. I start dealing drugs, start using drugs. I start using my musical gift to talk about selling drugs and started living a violent life. And then I ended up signing with a local label, and then we ended up getting to go on a tour with one of the largest hip-hop artists in the world. I was on the road with Lil Wayne for the Carter Three tour. So you can only imagine that that fueled the lifestyle that I was living of drugs and addiction and, and selling drugs, the culture, being a part of it. And I lived that life for many years. And in 2010, I had an encounter with the living God. I'm standing in the middle of this concert, and I don't know what y'all believe, but I'm just going to tell you my story. I'm standing there, and I think I'm dead because I'm dreaming and I'm having an open vision. You know, they say Paul had one of these on the road to Damascus. I'm literally having an open vision, and God takes me back to my childhood. And I remember being in vacation Bible school singing, I'm in the Lord's army. Then he fast forwards me to a time where I was 21. And I was high in my room smoking dope, and something said to Sean, go pick up the Bible. So I went and I picked up the Bible, and it looked like the words on the page were breathing. It was way before I knew that the Bible wasn't just words on a page, that it's breath on a page. It was way before I knew that the Holy Scripture was living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and I'm watching the Scriptures breathe. I threw it away, and I said, I am too high for this. My dope was bad today. I am not going to mess with this Bible. Fast forward to the moment that I was in, I snapped out of the vision, and it felt like the weight of my sin was crushing me in that arena. I knew in that very moment that if I didn't get out of the industry, my life would be lost, and I would die in my sin. I would die addicted, living an immoral life, chasing a dream that didn't add value to my life. So we're going to go over the Word of God. We're going to go through the Word of God, and we're going to look at what he says about addiction, about loving someone, and how the, what the foundation is to love someone who is really battling addiction. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you show up in this place. I pray that your Holy Spirit opens eyes, opens ears. God, that it awakens hearts. 
It awakens hearts, Lord, and that it allows people to be transformed by the power of your word. Lord, if there's anybody here dealing with addiction right now, I'm asking that you till the grounds of their hearts. And God, that they will receive healing. God, that you will start moving in a powerful way by the end of this process. I pray that if there's family members or friends or people of family members and friends who are dealing with addiction, that you will give them wisdom and knowledge and that something that you've placed on my heart can help them in the process of ministering to them. I pray all those things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're going to be looking at Matthew 18, 21 through 35. That's where we're going to camp out most of the time. But first what I'm going to do is I'm going to recap what's happening before this moment. It's important to put the scripture into context. So here's what's happening before this moment. Jesus goes over this process of restoring a brother or sister who has been offended. I know we can all relate to that because everyone in this room has been offended. And if you haven't, it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We will be offended. So Jesus is just telling the people, here's how you handle offense. He says, first, you go to the person that hurts you. Go to them. Go straight to them. Don't go to backyard Brenda. Who's going to tell Debbie down the street? Who's going to tell Roy about why Jack jumped through the wall and almost killed himself because he was high on opioids? Don't do that. Go straight to them, the Bible says. It says if they don't listen to you, take another believer with you. If they still don't listen, take them before the church. But then he says something that seems like it's going to contradict where I'm going next. Check this out. He says if the first three steps don't work, Let them be like a Gentile and like a tax collector to you. In this context, in in the Greek text or in, in the Jewish mind, that is like saying, let them be like the scum of the earth. Like this, a Gentile and a tax collector was at the lowest rung of humanity. So think about the worst person in the worst situation who's done the worst thing you could think of. That is how they saw them in that moment. And Jesus says, let them be like one of those. Now, that's hard to wrestle with when we're thinking about a forgiving God and a God who tells us to forgive people on a regular basis. So let's look at what is really going on here. So check this out. I think the first three actions are dealing with the believer, right? A non-believer you can go to, sure, right? You can go to him, you can have a conversation, But a non-believer, you can't take them to the church. You can't take somebody else with you that's a believer and have a conversation. They do not care about what we believe. They don't care about our faith. So that's what Jesus is saying, do, do. But then you see him say what he says, let them be like a Gentile if these three steps don't work. But here's what I believe he is saying. I believe that he's speaking to the non-believer when he talks about let them be as a Gentile. If they aren't following these three things, then I think we have to check and we have to reason, okay, they're not believers or they've fallen so far away that my word has no weight and authority. So when we read that moving forward, when we go study this out, think about it that way. The first three steps is for the believer, and then the next step is the last step. The fourth step is for somebody who has fallen away from Christ or is a non-believer. So what I believe Jesus is saying is our ministry has to be different when we take them through a process when we're dealing with people who don't believe in Christ. 
And a lot of us go to them and we try to use scripture and we try to reason with them from the Bible, but they don't believe what we believe. So how do we love somebody who is far away from Christ, who's not going to submit to the word of God, who don't care about what your pastor says? We have to get to this point to where we can accept that they don't believe. And then we have to minister to them by leaving them in the hands of God and loving them through the process. We have to leave them in the hands of God, but love them through the process. Let me give you some Bible that backs this up. Paul shows us that there's a difference between loving and forgiving and working with a believer than it is a non-believer. He says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the people of this world, who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. In that case, we'd have to leave the world. There would be so many people we couldn't talk to because that is the way of the world. He says, in fact, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So we have to leave those people in God's hands, but love them through the process. Amen? So now that we understand, we're going to lay a foundation for how to love people who are dealing with addiction. When you're building a house, you lay a foundation, and everything is built upon that. So the foundation for loving someone who is dealing with addiction is radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. And I'm going to break that down. We're going to go through this. We're going to go through the scripture, and then we're going to give practical applications. Because it's easy to say that, but we want to show everybody what it looks like to practically love somebody dealing with addiction. So, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many times as seven and I have a suspicion that Peter thought he was being really righteous because we know, we know Peter. Peter was super zealous. And I think he's going to the Lord and he's like, man, we got to forgive them seven times, right? There was a rabbinical teaching that said we had to forgive the people at least seven times. So uh, Peter being studied, studying under Jesus, I know he probably went to the Lord and he's like, so what do you think about this? And Jesus' response was amazing. Here's what Jesus said. He said, um, Lord, how many times do I forgive my sister? I tell you, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. He didn't literally mean 490 times. If you didn't know that, he didn't literally mean 490 times. That's what we call in the Greek text an idiom. It's an idiom. He's saying, look, you have to forgive with no limit. It's like saying, forgive them a million times. Let it be unlimited. And I know that makes some people sad here. Because I know a lot of y'all has been reading that text. And y'all have been waiting for your spouse or your best friend or your neighbor to offend you the 491st time. So y'all can say, look, I don't want to deal with her anymore. But that's not the context of the scripture. And that's not what Jesus is meaning here. He's saying unlimited forgiveness. And I know some of y'all are bummed out about that, but I didn't say it. Jesus did. So you got to deal with that with him. So verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. So he goes into a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle the accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents brought before him did not have the ability to pay it back. 10,000 talents in today's economy, most economists say that is a trillion dollars in debt. This man had a trillion dollars in debt, not bill, a trillion dollars in debt, according to today's economists. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded him that he, his wife, his children, and everything had to be sold to pay the debt. And I'm reading this. I'm like, Lord, like you can have the house. You can have the car. You can have my wife, maybe. But the kids? Sell the kids, Lord, not the kids. It just, it rocks me reading this. And it says, at this time, the servant fell down before him and said, be patient with me. I will pay everything back. Now, we all know this is laughable because nobody in this room, nobody on this campground will probably ever make a trillion dollars in their lifetime. Let's just be honest with ourselves, guys. And if I'm wrong about that and you think you're on the verge of making a trillion dollars, I think we should be best friends. And uh, you could come right through this gate back there, and we can wear matching T-shirts from now on out. Uh, we can get tattoos together. If you want matching tats, we can do whatever. We, uh, we can be best friends. I think that's how it's uh, going to have to happen if you're on the verge of a trillion. Then the master says to the servant, the master had compassion on the servant. He released him, and he forgave him his loan. See, this is a picture of Jesus on the cross when he carried the full weight of injustice in our sin as an innocent man so that through him we could be forgiven. We could be restored to the Father as his children. We could be called righteous, which means we are in right standing with him. That means he paid our debt. We don't owe anything. Jesus paid it all. That's an amazing, beautiful passage. Jesus paid it all. But look at how the servant responds. We're talking someone who owed a trillion, right? Look at how the servant responds. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay me what you owe. Now, a denarii is about three months wages. That's attainable. Most people in this room can pay back three months wages. That's something that's attainable. So we're talking about a man who was forgiven so much but willing to throw somebody in chains for so little in comparison to his debt. At this point, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, I will pay you back, attainable. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay everything that was owed. When the other servants saw this and saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you of all that debt. You begged me. So shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I did on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that was owed. Everything. So basically, he spent the rest of his life in chains. He spent the rest of his life bound by unforgiveness, bound because of unforgiveness. He could not be free ever. 
because he refused to release forgiveness. And then Jesus goes on to say, these are words in red. Jesus goes on to say, my heavenly father will do this to you unless every one of you, us in this place, believers who know better, unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Can everybody say from your heart? From your heart. Thank you. See, God requires us to forgive much because we've been forgiven much. And as Christians, we have to err on the side of forgiveness. I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but it was foundational to the ministry of Jesus. And we see it when he's on the cross, right? We see it in one of the, the pinnacle, one of the pivotal moments of the, of the Bible. Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't say, he didn't say shame them for they know not what they do. He didn't say condemn them for they know not, but forgive them for they know not what they do. He's literally forgiving people who are crucifying him. While he's hanging on the cross, there's a couple men rolling dice, casting lots for his garment because they see his garment more valuable than human life. Let that sink in. That is what's happening while he's saying forgive them for they know not what they do. He modeled the level of forgiveness that's required of us. So if he can forgive the people killing him, we can forgive a loved one who is dealing with opioid addiction who says something mean to us. We can forgive the loved one who's stealing from us, who's lying to us or on us or hurting us because we have been forgiven so much debt. And he's saying we got to forgive is so important. That is the foundation because if everything's not built on that, you can't love properly. You can't serve properly. We've got to walk in that forgiveness through the grace of God. And most drug addicts have no clue what they're doing. As I shared the story about my uncle, he got out of jail and had no clue. He had just beat the whole family apart. Had no clue. They don't know because they're not in their right mind. So, so what's foundational for loving people? Forgiveness, right? It's the foundation that we have to lay. We have to forgive them because most of them don't know what they're doing. That's where we'll start, and that's where we will finish every single time. It's walking in the power of forgiveness. See, unforgiveness, though, it'll leave us stuck spiritually and emotionally. Hear what I'm saying? It'll leave us stuck spiritually and emotionally. A lot of us sit back and we wonder, like, like why God? God, why am I not getting closer to you? Why, why am I not hearing you? Why am I not feeling your presence? Why are my emotions this roller coaster? Because so many of us are harboring unforgiveness towards people who have hurt us in our past. And I get it. I understand. I've been sexually abused as a child, so I know the pain of really having to deal with forgiving somebody who could have potentially destroyed your life. I'm speaking from experience. It's hard. It is difficult, but it's commanded that we walk. It's, it's, it leaves us on this spiritual roller coaster if we, if we live like that. Forgiveness is hard because it's not natural. It's, it's a supernatural thing to forgive someone who hurts us. It's not natural at all. The natural human, you punch me, I punch you. You cuss me, I cuss you. You hurt me, I hurt you. That is the natural response for the human being who is dealing with anything apart from God coming in, transforming our heart, giving us the grace to respond gracefully and respond with forgiveness. 
See, the problem is when we don't walk this thing out, this forgiveness thing, we start to form habits. We start to form habits, and it becomes a problem because we train our limbic system to fight instead of love. We train it to fight instead of forgive. We train it to destroy instead of heal. Our limbic system is the part of the brain that involves our behavior and our emotional response. See, that's where habits are formed, our limbic system. That's where our suppressed memories hang out as well. And a lot of us are dealing with stuff from our past that we don't even realize we're still dealing with. The limbic system constantly has to be transformed by the power of God. I believe when God says be transformed by the renewing of your mind, let your, your limbic system be transformed daily by digging into God's word, seeking his face, and asking God to heal you from the wounds that have been bestowed upon you by people that you love. Because what we don't allow to God, God to transform, we will transmit. I want you to hear that. What we don't transform, we will transmit. It's the same thing as saying hurt people hurt people. Cry out for God to forgive you so that to give you grace to absorb the pain. I know it's hard, but to cry out, God, give me grace to absorb the pain. Like, I, I don't want to walk in unforgiveness. I don't want to hate this person. I want to absorb the pain. I want you to come in. I want you to wash over me. I want your word to heal me. I want to be free from offense so I can properly walk in love, so I can serve the people who are bound who don't even know who they are anymore because they're oppressed, and the person that you once knew is no longer there. They're hidden in there. They're trapped there. It's almost like that man who was in the graveyard, and you see him coming to himself, and Jesus is walking up, and then he goes back to being demonically oppressed. And then he's like, free me, free me. Then he's back to being, they're, they're there, they're trying to break through. And most people want to be free, whether you think so or not. But they don't even know where to start or how to get free. But it starts with us being the light of the world to a lost and dying generation who is struggling with oppression. Now, how do we practically live this thing out? How do we stay free from bitterness and unforgiveness toward people dealing with addiction? I'm going to give you some practical things. So what I'm going to do is go over four points. And within those points, I'm going to give practical applications. So point number one, realize that you will be hurt by people dealing with addiction. So we have to release them from the pain that they have caused us. Forgiveness. We have to release them from the pain that they have caused us. How? We have to have compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. When you see Jesus do some of the greatest miracles in the Bible, it says that he was moved with compassion. When he raised Lazarus, he was moved with compassion. We have to be moved with compassion. Don't shame or criticize them. Don't shame or the, the world's already shamed them. They're, they're Gentiles. They're tax collectors. The world's already shamed them. They don't need any more shame. They need the love of God. They need forgiveness. They need you to demonstrate who we claim that we love and serve. Expect difficulties. It's not going to be easy. Never will it be easy. Expect the difficulties. Press into God. It's a rough journey. We have seen some crazy things dealing in ministry at the Spark and the other ministries that we work with that does this. Press in. Expect difficulties. Don't expect immediate change. This is a good one. 
A lot of people want people just mm, changed overnight, and that happens. Some people come to meetings. We pray over them. God supernaturally heals them. They get on fire. It's, I mean, it happens, but don't expect immediate change in somebody's life. We're all on a process. They're on a process. Sanctification is a process. So have grace as we walk this thing out with them. Educate yourself about addiction. It's good to know about the limbic system. It's good to know what it does, why people respond the way they respond, or why they act the way they act. It's very important to educate ourselves about addiction. Don't enable your loved ones. Oh, this is so good. I remember giving people um, money, thinking I was being so righteous, uh, going out to people on the streets, handing them money. In return, they'd go out and buy dope, some enabling their habits. I want you to love your, your family, your friends dealing with addiction. Feed them a meal. If they're safe enough, invite them in, in your home if, if they need a place to stay for a night. Get them a hotel if they need a place to stay for a night, but don't go giving them cash that can go enable them to do the things they are doing. That's not helpful to them, I promise. And I know it'll hurt them. It'll offend them. I have family I've offended, but don't enable them. Don't give in to the manipulation. I had a friend, uh, Dan, uh, told me this, and it sounds mean, but in most cases, 90%, it's true. Uh, he told me that uh, one of his friends had said to him that uh, if people are talking that are dealing with addiction, in most cases, they are lying or manipulating you because they're always looking for a way to get something to get their next high. They're always looking for something. I know that's not the case for everybody, but it's very true. Some of the lies we've heard, my mother died, I need a bus ticket, crying, the water works. Uh, if I don't get there, I'm not going to watch her be buried. We give them the money. We watch them literally walk into the store and buy crack cocaine. Don't violate their privacy. This is the biggest one. If somebody gets to the point in their life where they're ready to come, like, confide into you, like, like break down. They're not asking for money. They're not asking. They're like, look, I'm bound. I want to be free. I've lost my kids. I want my children back. Don't go to Backyard Brenda and say, guess what? Roy, who tried to jump through the wall, came and was telling me he wants to be free, blah, 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 and start gossiping that doesn't help that betrays their trust when they find out about it and it pushes them further away from us who are called to be a light to them. Number two major point, you have to release your own heart from the pain and anger and the damage that's caused. You can forgive someone but still be damaged. I want you to catch this. You can forgive someone but you can still be damaged. If my friend Dan, wherever he is, if he was to run on this stage right now and have a butter knife and somehow stab it through me. I might, I'm going to be wounded. It's going to hurt. I can release him from that. I cannot hang that over his head. I'm like, I forgive you, Dan. Like, I'm not going to hate you for that. However, there's still a wound there. And there's still something that needs to be healed in me. And if I don't allow that wound to be healed, I can start transmitting my pain to other people. That wound has to be healed. What we don't transform, we will transmit. Remember that. Uh, you do this by seek counseling, seek therapy, accountability. A pastor, a, a licensed counselor, however, however you need to seek counseling and therapy, go for it. 
get some help, have accountability. That's not the same as talking to Backyard Brenda because this isn't about talking to people about what that person done. It's about you getting free from what's been done to you and your pain. Take care of yourself. That's a simple one. Take care of you. Whatever that looks like, vacation, therapy, take, just take care of yourself because if you get worn down, if you get weary, you're no good to somebody else who's weary. So make sure you're being refreshed, renewed in the word of God, staying in good community, good fellowship, and being made whole on a regular basis because it's tough work. This one's big. Number three, major point. You can't allow your heart to grow bitter with God. Like it's hard to know that God allows our loved ones to go through so much pain. And it can get us angry if we're all being honest. It can get us angry. Because we serve a God who's on the throne, who's in control, yet we watch our family go through so many horrible things. Even if it's not drug, a cancer, a young loved one die. We see so much pain on this side of life. It is easy to get bitter with God. But that is our life source. That is how we get whole. That is how we get healed. That's how we get filled and refueled. And get led. We can't allow our hearts. Stay in community. And you could do this by taking care of yourself. Talking to counselors. Staying free from offense. The last one is the hardest one for me to even say. It's sometimes you'll have to love them with their addictions until death. Sometimes you're going to have to love them until they die in their addiction. And you may never see breakthrough on this side of life. But it's painful when you have to love somebody to death, literally. So I want a friend of mine, as I close, to get ready to come share her story dealing with addiction. God set her free from some very, very hard drug use. Um, and now she's the program director of the Spark Recovery Community. So it's awesome what God is doing. So Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you can speak to us about how to handle important things. I thank you that you give us a compass. You guide us. You lead us. You give us wisdom. I thank you that you give us community. You give us fellowship. You give us brothers and sisters to walk through this life with. So, God, right now I'm asking for grace for anyone dealing with addiction personally or dealing with addiction in friends and family. God, give them grace. In fact, let's go one step further. God, we all agree right now. We're standing in agreement that your Holy Spirit will start to move right now on the hearts of every loved one dealing with addiction right now. God, we just declare, be free in Jesus' name, that conviction will fall upon the prodigal and they will return home. God, that your power will go forth and chains will start to fall. God, we thank you that you have a mighty word, that it's living, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And when your word pierces flesh and spirit, people break free. God, I thank you so much for your wisdom and your love and your guidance. Be with us, everybody here on their journey in life and loving those who are dealing with addiction. We pray all those things in Jesus' beautiful, loving, holy, mighty name. Amen. Hello, everybody. It's hot out here, isn't it? Well, I, my name is Katie, 
And actually, that's my brother-in-law, Deshaun. And I was an addict for 17 years. Um, I grew up in the church. And at a very young age, I gave my life to the Lord. Um, And then whenever I was um, in high school, my... uh, my church went through a very bad split up. And so I watched the grown-ups that I looked up to um, act not like Jesus. I lost friends. I lost um, relationships. And I just decided I was not, I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't want anything to do with the church. And so I turned my back on him and the church and I went my own way. I started smoking pot and drinking and um, being promiscuous in high school. And then when I turned 18, I met the father of my children. He was 32. He was married. And we started seeing each other. We started partying and doing all kinds of different drugs and everything. And um, eventually we started, or he got divorced and we moved in together and we started smoking crack. Well, finally, his family did an intervention because we were living in a house with no furniture, and um, he made enough money to buy furniture. So they had an intervention. I went home to my parents, and I found out I was pregnant. That did not end it, though. So we eventually got back together and landed on uh, pain pills, and that started a very long road, and... Um, of just depression and anxiety and loneliness. (laughs) So we were together for seven years. And when um, when my youngest was four years old, I left him and moved back in with my parents. And, you know, they had went through this radical change and the Lord just did something awesome in their lives. And they eventually just started loving me so differently at that point. And it changed my view of the church and of, of God ultimately. And then my, seven years later, my grandfather died. And it, it wrecked me. It absolutely wrecked me. I knew that I would never see him again. I was going to go one place and he was going to heaven. So on the way home, you know, I cried. But anyway, I went to work one day. And um, on the TV was Creflo Dollar, and he said, on TBN, he said, you know, if you know Jesus, you're never alone. And that hit my heart like an arrow, and I knew that that was true, and so I decided I needed to go back to church. So I started going back to church, and one morning during worship, the Lord just absolutely met me, and he said, Yes, you have done all these things. He showed me all my sins. But it wasn't in a mean or accusing way. It was with arms wide open saying, yes, you've done this, but I love you and I want you. Come to me. And and I said, yes. So it took me five months to uh, kick everything. And those months were very hard. I was convicted a lot. But that also started my relationship with the Lord and my dependence on him as well. I started reading the word, spending time with him every day, and, and really just knowing that he was the only way I could make it through anything. And so um, after that, you know, the Lord really 
worked in my life and my family. I, he restored my relationship with my kids. <laughs> that was a huge, long process. You know, I had ruined our relationship, but he restored that relationship. And now they're 18 and 19, and they're doing well, and we're good friends, and, and hopefully one day they'll follow the Lord again. But that'll be come. But, uh, and then the, he fixed our relationship with my parents my brother and my sister, which I had burned, you know, so, you know, he can do anything, and they have forgiven me, (laughs) and I have forgiven things that um, happened to me as a child as well, so anyway, there is just absolute hope in Jesus, and showing the addicts love is, is the way, it's the only way, thank you guys.